1: Today we'll be exploring an affirmative life story of hope and respect for men of color at a time when black men are routinely stigmatized. Will Gerwondo's vivid and moving story not only applies to black men, but is a reminder for all our children, most especially those at risk, how even a brief encounter of positive mentoring can make all the difference in their lives. As a man born of a Nigerian father and a white mother, Jawando provides a guidebook on the essential gift of mentorship and how enormously transformative it can be for an entire community. As you listen to this conversation, allow your mind to remember the people who mentored you along the way. Will Chawando is a civil rights and education policy attorney, a community leader, and a council member in Montgomery County, Maryland, a diverse community of more than 1 million residents. Called the progressive leader we need by the late Congressman John Lewis, Chawando has worked with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Ohio Senator Sherard Brown, and was appointed Associate Director of Public Engagement during President Obama's time at the White House, and, I might add, invited to play basketball on more than one occasion with President Barack Obama. Will Chirwando is the author of My Seven Black Fathers, a young activist memoir of race, family, and the mentors who made him whole. Join us for the next hour as we explore the power of mentorship in shaping young lives with our guest, Will Jawando. I'm speaking with Will at his home by Remote Connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Will, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me, Justine. It's, It's an honor to be with you.
1: It's my honor and pleasure to have you. I'd love to go back to some of the early beginnings and to a friend of yours, a dear mentor, maybe an early mentor friend. His name was um, Jafani.
2: Calfani. Calfani. Calfani.
1: Calfani. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, tell me what is the difference between your lives and your trajectory and his?
2: Well, Calfani is. Uh... My best friend for much of my early life. I meet him on in fifth grade on the basketball court. Um, and he is the most popular kid. He's the uh best in basketball, he's smart, he's funny. And I'm at that point, I'm I'm the quintessential, you know, chubby uh, outsider, middle schooler who doesn't have friends at a new school. And he takes me under his wing. And he's really the first uh you know, kind of real friend I have, uh, and, and a peer mentor, a, a big father figure for me, just even at that age, you know, someone who was in, uh, kind of helping me get through my life and the circumstances of my life at that time. Uh, and, and we're thick as thieves is, you know, all the way through elementary school and we hang out, uh, at each other's homes and, uh, we're really close friends. Uh, and that starts to, uh, Kind of, we start to veer, uh, you know, as we move into high school. Uh, and, he, you know, he's what I call in the book, I talk about uh, destination kids versus decision kids. And Calfani was a decision kid where, you know, every day when the school bell rang, his mom was working two jobs as cleaning houses and one uh, as a night nurse. Uh, he had to decide where he was going to go. There was no after school program. There was no uh, defined place for him to go. And I was a different type of kid. I was a destination kid. I had a place to go. I went to my mother's job after work, uh, after school rather. And it's actually a place, not only that was safe, um, and productive, it's also a place where I meet several of my seven black fathers. And so I talk about, it, uh, these divergent paths. And unfortunately, Calfani ends up getting caught up uh, with people he shouldn't be caught up with, and drugs, and and uh, gets killed uh, in a drug deal gone bad. When as we're exiting light, uh, high school, and you know, I, I thought I think as I think back about it, I think about him quite often, about all the circumstances that led to those very different outcomes, and how he was uh, better than I was. You know, he's smarter, he's funnier, but he's no longer here, and but i really know and believe that if he had the access to these mentors these father figures like i did and had had personal relationships a place to go an after school program all the things that could have exposed him to these people he might still be with us today
1: that's a, a just such a moving story and and it seems like it really has instructed you in your life about what mentoring really means as it's helped you and i want you to talk about uh, one of your early mentors i just i loved uh the idea of well i think you were in mostly white school grade school at this time maybe third or fourth grade and mr williams walks in the room uh tell us about this character in your life
2: Yes, Mr. Williams. Uh, So I meet Mr. Williams in fourth grade at Oakview Elementary in Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, It's actually after a couple of years of going to a predominantly white school in Chevy Chase, a more uh, wealthy part of Maryland, where I had uh, dealt with discrimination and uh, racism and being the only child that looked like myself and uh, was recommended to be put on medication. It was just a really tough two years there. Uh, and my mom switched me to public school uh because of the issues that we were having there. And so a much more diverse environment, but but I was still the new kid. Um and you know, I go to five schools before I'm in the eighth grade, uh, and try having to adjust multiple times. And Mr. Williams is the uh really an oasis. He's the he's the first uh and only black male teacher I would ever have. Um he walks into the room and uh just immediately commands the respect of all of us um and he's the first uh black man i ever see wear a shirt and tie every day um and indeed in the time that i knew him those 9 months uh, almost 35 years ago he taught me how to tie a tie gave me my first tie uh was very helpful in dealing helping me deal with bullying uh, and just was just supportive, uh, you know, taught us math. Obviously, math was was my favorite subject from that point on. Um, and he was just a really important figure in my life in that he demonstrated excellence. He was kind, he, he, he taught us uh very important skills, uh, and and just was an example of something to aspire to at a time where I didn't really have that in my life. And uh I, I often I I mentioned in the book that I only knew him nine months I didn't know his first name. Uh, but, uh, he had a profound impact on my life. Uh, and it was only in researching for this book that I find out more about him. And, uh, his name was, uh, Chuck Williams, and he was a former captain in the U S army, uh, flew helicopters in Vietnam. And then as a second career became an elementary math teacher. Um, but, uh, never would see him again. Uh, He actually passed away in 2019. Uh, I've I've been in touch with his children and grandchildren, but it just is a testament to how big of an impact someone can have in a relatively short period of time um, if you're intentional and engaged with the young person.
1: That's, I think, the big point that I got from it, that it wasn't the length of time of mentorship It can be a more brief encounter that can really change someone's life forever. I mean, I I think you mentioned uh, about every time you put on a tie, you think of Mr. Williams. I do. Yeah, I
2: do. I do. Even to this day. Even to this day.
1: Yeah, that's, that's so beautiful. Then uh, there's your stepfather, Joseph Jacobs, and there's a beautiful story that you tell about how he took you to, the, for the first time, you experienced a, a black barbershop, yeah. and that was like a, a whole black community of older men that maybe I think you described that you hadn't really experienced before.
2: No, no. Yeah. Joseph is, is, was important in so many ways. And uh, he's obviously uh, my stepfather and he's still in my life, but he comes in at a point where uh, I have had no real positive relationship with someone who looked like me, a, a, a black male father or father figure. My, my father was very, I describe him in the book as an absent presence uh, though physically present in the home for the first six years of my life until my parents divorced, we don't really have a relationship. I'm, I'm longing. I'm literally hanging on to his leg, trying to get him to engage. Um, and because of things he's dealing with, I would find out later depression and, uh, a whole range of other things. He's, he's not, uh, able to engage with me in the way that I would like, or my mother would like, or, uh, probably in hindsight, even he would like. And, uh, so when I meet Joseph, uh, I'm at a point where I'm, I'm starving for that attention. And he's the first one to give it to me in a very practical and daily way asking, you know, how's your day? What's, what do you like? What do you care about? And, um, and then also, uh, in addition to his presence and engagement and his you know, care and love, he also is the first one to really intentionally expose me to the African American experience. And, and I think that is something that, you know, as the son of a Nigerian immigrant and a white woman from Kansas, I everything that I gleaned was from either other students or pop culture, basketball, and Joseph, you know, in taking me to a barbershop, which is one, one of many things. Uh, as a you know a someone who grew up in Washington D.C. as an African American went to public schools. His mother was a teacher. He was very steeped in uh, the African American experience, and and there's nothing more quintessentially African American than going to the barbershop. And uh, I describe that really, uh, you know, kind of emotional and uh, you know very uh, engaging and interesting experience uh, in the book as a young person.
1: Exactly. It was delightful to read about that. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Will Giorando, and he is the author of My Seven Black Fathers, a young activist memoir of race, family, and the mentors who made him. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, willgerondo.com. And he spells his last name, J A W. A-N-D-O, willjawando.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Will Jawando. He's a civil rights and education policy attorney, community leader, and author of My Seven Black Fathers. And Will, before we leave, your stepfather uh, Joseph Jacobs, and you mentioned briefly how he he really helped you navigate in a way. Uh, in in some ways, he really he gave you what is called the talk of how to be a black man in the uh us uh culture today. And in even in the book there there you you talk about how you yourself have been profiled and just pulled over as uh driving black uh as being profiled yourself. And so uh let's just talk a moment about what he taught you and how how that is for you and how you've helped others with that
2: yes well he's uh as I mentioned he's kind of a gateway into the uh, authentic african-american experience that I was living right you know as a as a child you know here growing up in America uh, the sociologically uh perceived and and as a african-american you know child um, and he also gives me a version of that talk as I'm transitioning to new schools you um, with the support and of my mother, which I'm very thankful for, as a white woman herself, you know, she she had some experience with knowing that the discrimination that was around, you know, having grown up in in rural Kansas, uh, dating and then marrying a, Niger- a black Nigerian uh, uh, in the middle in the early 1970s, which was not uh, no one really in, you know encouraged that at that time, obviously. And so they both were very uh, important. And, but Joseph from lived experience as well and saying like, look, you, you've got to, uh, you know, which is a really old school kind of passed on tradition. You've got to work harder. You've got to understand that there's discrimination. People are going to think less of you. There's going to be uh, stereotypes and tropes, but you have to kind of overcome it. And uh, that is a uh, a version of the talk that's still given today and uh, something that we need to work to change so that that's not the reality. Uh, But it was very helpful for me to understand that and to have someone to kind of, uh, even if we didn't talk about it every day, someone who I knew understood what I was going through and could relate and give some advice and care and concern to what I I was dealing with. One
1: of the other people that I'd love for us to cover at least is um Dean Sanwola is that yeah, like, Sanwoya. Sanwoya. Yeah. um and he worked with your mom and he wow he was the one who got you to Nigeria for the first time uh, uh it was just an amazing thing for him to do and uh I want to add to his story um the story of your grandmother, because um for some reason, even though you only met her, you don't even remember it, you met her as a baby, but mm-hmm. you would talk to her on the phone. She would call from Nigeria and you would talk to her on the phone, trying to understand her her accent and everything. But but uh you felt deeply connected with her. And there, there's a quote when you shared with Dean um, your love of your grandmother and your hope that you would meet her, although you didn't, she died before you got to Nigeria. Um, uh, He says, this is such a great quote. He says, grandmothers are like countries because they are where we come from. All our grandmothers are our source. And, you know, you may not know this, but I've mentioned this to our listeners several times in the years that I've been hosting, is that biologically, each of us has have lived in our grandmother's body mm. as an egg in potential as our mother is forming in the womb of their mother. So we've all lived in the body of our grandmothers so it's no wonder uh, i think that we would have that connection so say something about your connection with your grandmother and then about your trip your first trip to nigeria
2: yes yeah that uh i'm glad you raised that um you know one of the byproducts of not having connection with my father as a young child is that he is my you know kind of access point to my nigerian heritage that side of my family and to that to the point of that quote uh in many many cultures i think in most cultures you know women are the culture givers and the uh the sustainers of uh of many traditions and and the like and you know, I meet my grandmother. I have the pictures of when she was, oh, I was one years old, one year old or, or less, and she's holding me. And when she came to visit the U S and I would talk to her, as you mentioned, from time to time on the phone. Uh, but I always felt a deep connection to her. Uh, I think as part of my yearning and wanting to know more about that side of my culture and heritage. And so she passes away when, um, I'm, you know, uh, I think 13 or 14 years old and uh, Muslim tradition. She was a amazing woman. She was had taken the Hajj to Mecca in the 50s at a time when from Nigeria, which they, when they were still traveling uh, you know by foot and by you know uh, not flying. and um, which was a very unique thing. And so she was very well respected in her community and was very close to my dad. Um, I would come to find out later that he was the youngest of, of four her four children. And, uh, so she passes away and because of their Muslim tradition, they have to be buried within 24 to 48 hours. And financially, my father, we're not in a position to grab a flight right away. It's expensive. And, you know, I, I was very upset with my father. I wanted him to ask for money or borrow it or call my uncle in Nigeria or try to get it. And, and he, you know, for whatever reason he doesn't. And so we missed that funeral. Uh, and it's something that I'm angry about for, for many years uh, with my father. And it kind of wraps into this whole uh, what I've missed out on because I don't have this relationship with him and compounds that that anger and that uh, sense of longing. And Dean, uh, in a very significant way, uh, through my engagement, through seeing him at my default de facto after school program at my mother's job, teaches, uh, is showing me things about my Nigerian culture, but then ultimately invites me to go. Um, and we go when I'm, uh, you know, just, just turned, I think 19 and, uh, he takes me and offers to pay for a trip. And I, and I go and my father, uh, doesn't go with me, but, uh, as soon as I get there, my uncle meets me at the airport and I'm meeting all these family. And the first thing that's asked of me when I see everybody is where's your father? And uh, and so uh, when we have this transformational trip and I visit all these relatives, uh, it puts kind of some pressure on my dad uh, and and ends up leading to a really transformational trip two years later that we go on together uh, with along with my then girlfriend, now wife of 16 years, Michelle. Uh, to Nigeria and to visit where he grew up and to visit our his his parents my grandparents' grave and and which really kicks off the reconciliation process with me and my father, um, so it's a pivotal moment uh, both for me personally. Uh, it also is when I come back from Nigeria that first trip with Dean. I I reclaim my name that it was switched when my parents divorced. I w- I went by Yemi uh, until I was six, and when my which is my middle name Opeyemi and when my parents divorce uh, my mother says your name is William and i start going by william but when i go to nigeria i reclaim that and come back and and uh and and really feel deeply connected to that side of my heritage so uh it's a it was a big trip for a lot of reasons but dean uh was a pivotal character in that
1: and i think that at going being in nigeria itself gave you a different view of of yourself as a part of a larger black worldwide black culture absolutely
2: yeah a a world by black diaspora you know there's a and this is there's it's not uncommon you know black people are the only people in america who don't exactly know where they come from you know um and you uh, because of the 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 brutality and the intentional disconnection of family uh, that was a hallmark of the transatlantic slave trade that has been robbed, uh, taken from so many people. And and you often see, I've seen it going back since with others who have not been to the continent. There is this sense of overwhelming connectivity uh, when you reach the shores of continent of Africa, regardless of the country, you know, and, and now we have the DNA and people can go even deeper now with testing and knowing what region they come from. Um, but And then also just being in a place where everyone is black, you know, you know, that is something and whether the pressure of of being different, of being something that is looked at differently or attributed with stereotypes and tropes, the fact that that is uh, not present when you get to the continent is a relief. And I've certainly felt that uh, when I got there as well.
1: well. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'd I'd love to talk about um, another mentor that you came across. I think when you were at Catholic University, I believe, if I get this right, and this was someone who um, helped you to start an NAACP. Uh, what do you call it? chapter chapter uh, at at the university? Uh, Professor Dean Hodge uh he he really helped you and this was quite something that you you went through in order went, what 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 gave you the idea first of all to even think about it
2: well uh yeah dean hogie is the way it's pronounced oh hoagie okay. um, thank yeah, you Yeah, no but it's spelled it's spelled uh, h-o-g-e yeah he uh well he's my sociology professor uh and really hope help, help opens my mind to uh and put some meat on the bones so to speak of why inequality is the way it is and 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 who is pulling the strings and what how we've developed and what what corporate power is and he he really kind of gives me the tools and the language uh to even going back to what happened to calfani to start to analyze some of the sociological and economic different types of inequality and i think it's that in that teaching process that I, I start to always notice it around campus. And, you know, we, Catholic University is in a historically African-American neighborhood in Brookland area of Northeast Washington, D.C., and many of the workers were African-American, either the landscapers, the food service, the janitorial. Uh, and they were in a school that's 95 percent white. They were treated badly many times by students and by other faculty. Um, and I was that always bothered me and I was always very kind to them. And I would talk to them about things that were happening to them. And I, you know, over time, I learned that things like wage theft and uh, not uh, n- not having flexible hours and uh, obviously being mistreated w- or happening. And I had gone to an NAACP chapter meeting at Howard.
1: I, I, we're gonna pause right there uh, in that in the story and come back to that in just one moment. I want to remind my listeners, our listeners, that I'm here with Will Joando, and he is the author of My Seven Black Fathers, a young activist memoir of race, family, and the mentors who made him whole. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
0: Uh, e sure. ch
1: Here with Will Gerondo, and we're talking about a moment in his life when he was inspired to start an NAACP uh, chapter at his university. And so, please uh, continue with that story.
2: Yep. So, I go to, you know, I'm, I'm observing these kind of issues that uh, the staff at Catholic are dealing with. Uh, I get invited to a chapter meeting of the NAACP at Howard University, which is just a, a stone's throw away, a, couple, a mile or so, mile or two. And uh, I get the idea of, I should start one of these chapters at Catholic um, that we can advocate for the rights of the workers. We can bring together a fragmented uh, and small uh, black community of students at Catholic around a set of issues. And so I go about the business of, trying to uh, collect the students and give them to get me uh, $15 a piece or whatever the, the payment was at that time. And uh, I just go to the Office of Student Life and and work really hard to charter the chapter. And we get, to, get it chartered on the NAACP side. And then after working six months on the university side, this, the chapter uh, is denied. And uh, Professor Hogie is in I'll never forget, I had recruited him to be the faculty advisor, one of the requirements of having a chapter. And we're sitting in this meeting with the head of student life where they deny the chapter. And he says kind of in a very, you know, professorial voice, voice he said, well, there's no reason to deny this chapter. And uh, I think you're doing it for other reasons. And, the, you know, the stated reasons were that the NAACP supported abortion rights. And, uh, and so we're a Catholic university, which wasn't true, wasn't an official position of the NAACP. Even if it was, it shouldn't have mattered. And two, they said we already had a Black student union. Um, And uh, they said this would be duplicative. And I said, well, this is a civil rights organization that was founded in part by white people to advocate for the rights of all. And so that never made sense. But I think they they really just didn't want anyone, quote, unquote, causing trouble.
1: And also there were other Catholic universities that did have these chapters.
2: Georgetown University, right, in the same city being one of them. Um, and they were very supportive of our efforts. So they denied the chapter and, uh, I'll never forget, uh, professor Hoagie said, well, this would be a shame if it got out to the public and it it got out to the public. And I would find out later that he was a part of getting it out to the public. And he, he reported it to the Washington post. And they called me over the summer and I told them everything. And it was my first time in the Washington post as an activist. And, uh, it was a headline, Catholic Denies NAACP, and a picture of me in front of the big basilica here in, in D.C. And uh, we protested for three or four months. Uh, hundreds of people, Kweisi and Infume, who was the head of the NAACP at the time, now the congressman out of Baltimore, uh, came down and supported our efforts. And we won the chapter. And it was the first kind of social justice activism that I had been a part of. And uh, it felt really good. And it really put me on a trajectory uh, to stay in that line of work of of activism of uh, you know advocating for the rights of others, I think it's in large part why I became a civil rights lawyer.
1: You know, I, I'm just thinking, um, Professor Hokey. I mean, when and it turned out that he was the one who kind of connected the Washington Post with Correct. this whole effort. And so, in some ways, I mean, just his connection with someone at the Post. So in that way, it's kind of mentoring and taking, taking that extra step for someone. Just to saying, I know a person, I'm going to make a phone call for Will because I believe in Will and I'm going to make this phone call. And in some ways, it's kind of a pivotal moment and and then uh, you're now becoming a lawyer and while you're studying for your law degree you you're interning for uh, speaker of the house nancy pelosi although i think she wasn't speaker at that point but yeah. but uh you're interning for her and then at the same time oh will it's so great you realize you you read the uh barack obama's um biography and you realize the similarities. They are uncanny. <laughs> so uh you were encouraged by a friend to write a letter and it may have even been Michelle, your wife it was my, it was my, it was
2: my then fiance, yeah,
1: uh, to write this letter to him. So so let's talk about your persistence in uh writing a letter and your your similarity to backgrounds with Barack Obama?
2: Well, yes, I uh, he's one of you know the way this book is structured, as you know, uh, is every there's an introduction in seven chapters and each one of my seven black fathers is a chapter. Uh, and Barack Obama's chapter six. Um, and I meet him first on the screen as many of us met him in 2004 when he's giving the uh, keynote speech at the Democratic National Convention in Boston that really catapulted to him onto the national stage. Though he wasn't the nominee, everyone was talking about him. Uh, he said some amazing things in that speech and talked about his biography, you know, uh, being the son of a, a Kenyan immigrant, the, the grandson of a goat herder, uh, the son of a white mother from Kansas. Growing up uh, biracial and trying to navigate that, he, he has one line in that speech, which I... I Still think about it to this day where he says we need to eradicate the slander that a black youth with a book is acting white, um, and uh, had something I had related to growing up at my various schools. And so you know, one uh, one of the things about him is that you everyone can relate to him, but I had all these personal uh, connections in that African father, uh, white mom from Kansas, uh, absent from my father for much of my life. Uh, and also a great woman named Michelle, who uh, who we who were we were all this uh, budding attorneys, and um, so it was just. Uh, I said, "Look, I got to work for this guy," and I, I I was encouraged to write a letter, and I wrote this long three page letter of all our similarities and why I needed to work for him. And Michelle, uh, who's from New York and uh, whose parents were friends with Congressman Greg Meeks uh, from Queens, gave him the letter and asked him to give it to him, and. He said he did, but I, I'm sure it just got thrown, thrown away uh, or, or something. I don't, I don't think the then senator ever read it, but it, it was cathartic for me in that I, it was a kind of a way to get my feelings and emotions out, but also set me on a path to be persistent to seek out an, a job in his office, uh, which I do over the next six months, uh, just dropping by once a week uh, to visit. And give my resume to the staff, and I become. And they, friends. they
1: were probably looking. Oh, here he comes again. <laughs> here he is again.
2: <laughs> yep. And eventually, we become friends, and I with those folks, and oh, he whales back. And I get to meet with someone, uh, the deputy chief of staff, uh, Michael Stratmanis, who takes an interest in me, and I eventually get hired. It's one of the important points that I think you you kind of alluded to with Professor Hoagie. In pursuit of all of these things. There are all these other mentors that I had too that aren't the the lead, you know, character so to speak. But Michael Straumanis, one of my best friends and and mentors uh, I meet because I am aspiring to to work and because I was mentored by Barack Obama and, mm-hmm. and fathered in that way. Um, and uh, you know, I uh, it's also a testament to you need these relationships throughout your life. I I Mr. Williams I meet. When I'm 10 years old, Barack Obama, I meet when I'm 25, but I needed them just as much uh, yeah. in, in different ways and different things that they gave me.
1: Exactly. When you first joined the staff in that first meeting, you describe it in, in such beautiful detail and you you describe how President Obama says, we have a new staff member here, Will Gerondo, who apparently is my lost brother. Yes. <laughs> and yes, and yes. and it it shows like his humor uh you, which you describe but it it also is kind of that whole idea of being our brother's keeper. I I would love for you to kind of frame that for us.
2: Yeah, well we uh um I think one of the the best things in a through line between all of these All of my my black fathers and mentors is that they're they are intentional in in uh, the connection that they create Um, and Barack Obama was very affable and always tried to put people at ease Um, and this was an example of that you know making a joke and and I was in in a kind of what could be an awkward or tense situation Um, and. you know, talking about someone doing something really well when they can hear it uh, in earshot um, and and just being an example. I think he's a, he's a good example of in two ways of different types of mentorship that I try to do in this book is show and uh, kind of expand the definition of fatherhood or motherhood or mentorship in that he's mentoring me before I even meet him. When I when I see him on the Boston DNC speech and how he carries himself and how he interacts with his children, um, then when I work for him and observing him from afar, it's it, it would be many years in our relationship before we actually have a conversation about fatherhood or uh, when we're playing you know when we're playing basketball and and Michelle is getting ready to have her first child in 2010. That's five years after I meet him uh, until we have like a real conversation about the rigors of fatherhood and what the impact it has on your marriage and get, and I get that kind of what would, what would people would think about more of traditional mentorship advice about how to handle the situation. And that's important too, but, but everything prior to that is important too. being put at ease, being able to look and and observe how he acted and carried himself. And I think uh, that's something that we often forget about. There's a lot of ways to have impact in in specific moments uh but also in just how we carry ourselves and interact and how we're kind to people around us
1: and and you you said something earlier and you just kind of quickly in passing and i want to pause and bracket it because you said uh, something about uh uh president obama that uh, how he and how it's important for all of us in order in mentoring others. Sometimes one of the best things we can do is when we're in the company of that person that we're mentoring and, and then we're talking about them to another person, we are giving them a compliment. We're saying, Oh, this man, and this is what Obama did for you. When you were sitting in committee meeting behind it turned out to be Senator Obama and um, Senator Brown. Shabra. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and he turns around because now you're working for uh, Senator Brown. He turns around and, and do you remember what he said to Senator Brown?
2: Oh yes. Yeah. He said, well, you know uh, you stole a will from me, but you know, I'm, I know he's doing a good job or something to the effect of um you know uh i we taught him everything he knows and and uh-huh. and uh you know and, and just kind of just as you said kind of joking with senator brown about the skills and and how how good of a job i was doing and that the you know they kind of took me from him and and that i he was proud of me and you know it's it, like you said it was in earshot i wasn't in the conversation but i think he he knew i could hear
1: it yeah yeah i'm here with Lawyer and community leader, Will Gerondo, author of My Seven Black Fathers. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Mami Zolo, we mami where
0: mommy's Where Mamizou?
1: I'm here with Will Gerondo, and we're talking about mentorship. And in the last segment, we really talked about how through mentorship, it took you into a trajectory of uh, social activism and politics. And now at this point in time, and we're in the summer of 2022, um, you are actually a councilman in Montgomery County. And some people, like here where I live, we call it county supervisors. Right, right. So so it might have different titles, but but it's a big title. I mean, this is a huge county, very diverse county. And I love for you when when you first got elected, which was just amazing, and you are going to orientation you describe a moment of just kind of entering into the building and there are several people kind of checking you in black men. Yes. You, do you recall that moment?
2: I do. I do. Yeah. There were two, uh, African immigrants who were the security guards that were checking, entering the building. My now office building selected in 2018 and I'm up for reelection now. Um, and, uh, uh, they noticed, they were like, Are, you, know, and I introduced myself. I said, I'm Will Jawando. I'm one of the new council members. And and I said, we're going to have the inauguration soon. So he said, and one of them asked, uh, and they were both West African immigrants. And one of them asked, uh, what will you wear to the inauguration? And, uh, and I thought about it. I was kind of stunned. And, and, and he kind of answered his own, they answered their own question and said, you, you must wear traditional clothing. Um, and, uh, You know, uh, it really hit me like a ton of bricks because my dad had passed away recently uh, from cancer, uh, didn't see me elected. uh, And if he were at the inauguration, he would have worn traditional clothing. And it was something that I did at my inauguration to represent not only my 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 father and my heritage, but also all the many immigrants, a third of whom my county, I represent one point one million people, a third of whom are foreign born. Um, and we're a, a county of 1.1 million, the largest jurisdiction in the state of Maryland. And uh, it's something that I'm very proud to have done and still talk to people about it uh, to this day. But it was, uh, it was one of those uh, uh, very unique experiences and an example of a mentorship moment uh, as well. You know, that, young, that gentleman, even though he worked at security in the building that I was the council member to be a council member elect, he gave me that extra nudge and confirmation and affirmation to to do what was absolutely the right thing but that i might not have done otherwise
1: exactly and i i think of um it it anchored you in in your whole ancestral background in some way and and i think that one of them even understood your name, and saying, oh, that's Nigerian. He yes. recognized it as Nigerian. I mean, that must have just blown your circuits in some ways.
2: It it did. It did. It, it was also uh you know very kind of uh affirming. Um and uh but yes it was it definitely was uh uh I remember I was with my chief of staff at the time and it it kind of blew us both away.
1: Yeah yeah Tell us, um, what is, what do you believe is the importance? I mean, we all get focused on, let's say presidential elections and and things like that. But in local elections, um, how important is it for us to be aware of who we're voting for, why we're voting for them, to understand who they are, to research them, to, to to get involved in some way in our local politics in these kinds of elections, like local supervisors or sure. city council people, whoever it is.
2: Well, it's critical. Um, you know, these are the elections, and this was this was really important over the last four years. You know, the first two, you know, first two years of my term were dealing with. Trump as president and all the things he was doing at the federal level and, you know, gridlock in Congress and all those things. And so it was so important and gratifying to be able to implement local policy and programs that improve the lives of residents, you know, after school programs, being a safe haven for immigrant families, uh, you know, and then obviously the pandemic where we're making all the decisions, who wears a mask, who doesn't, what's open, what's closed. How do we allocate uh, resources to support people who are food insecure or, you know, behind on their rent? Um, Those are all local decisions. And 90 percent, I tell people all the time of of your daily life, where your kids go to school, the roads you drive on, uh, the trash getting picked up, the police and fire uh, response times, uh, you know, go down the list are local decisions. Um, And uh, it's so important to know who those decision makers are so that you can advocate to them about the needs of your community. And and it's really important. And I think a lot of people have started to realize that, but it's still something that we always need to remind folks about.
1: I I know one thing that that we've done in uh, Sonoma County in Northern California was some of us have gone to different council meetings and tried to educate our legislators about uh, the difference between low-income housing and affordable housing. And like the catchword is, oh, we're doing affordable housing, so everything's okay. But they don't realize that affordable housing is still market value. But low-income housing is really that housing that serves people that are truly living on lower incomes. So Absolutely. this is just like one of the the sort of things that I I mean I'm aware of in my life of of how we've attended different meetings and 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 worked in different ways with uh, our elected officials to help them out to know just who they are representing. So uh, any any comment on that will
2: No, it's it's so important and it's an example of you know, housing right now, the cost of housing is one of the most important issues for everybody at every stage, whether you're a young person coming back to your hometown trying to live there or someone in a, who's a family trying to find a place to live for your family or a senior looking to, you know, age in place or retire with dignity. There's a crunch on housing and, and to your point of what does affordable housing mean? What what does should rents should be able to be raised at any amount, right? These are all local decisions, um, and and I and and people like me across the country are making those decisions. And the more informed people are and understand those levers, it can have a direct and immediate impact on the quality of life for millions of residents.
1: I want to give one other example that I've experienced. I used to live in Mendocino County. And they have a board of supervisors, and at any one time that board of there are five of them. Sometimes there are uh, three progressives and two conservatives, and sometimes there are three conservatives and two progressives, and it kind of switches back and forth. And one year, at that election, um, the I think it was the progressives got three uh, by one vote. By I mean one vote so they did a recount and it was still one vote right and i that just to me blew my socks off that here that's where each of our individual vote really really matters it's really it matters uh that we we vote and we we make our our wishes heard absolutely um
2: i lost my first election when i ran in 2014 by less than 1%. It was less than 100 votes, you know, uh and uh so every vote matters absolutely and uh, your vote your vote is your voice. Um and uh especially at a time where money has been deemed to be a uh you know speech, we certainly need to make sure we exercise our our rights to vote and they're under attack. There's a reason they're they're under attack. They're powerful. Yeah. Um and while people are working to make it Harder across the country, thousands, you know, hundreds of laws proposed to restrict voting rights because people understand uh, the power of the vote.
1: I'd I'd love to go out with just one more thought, and this has to do with with your father and how going back to Nigeria and being at the gravesite of your grandmother with him was such a healing moment. And in this brief moment that we have together, can can you just say something and describe that moment for you and how healing it was for both you and him?
2: yeah, it was it was a emotional moment. It was a healing moment. It was also the start of of a healing journey. Going to my father's homeland for his first time in over thirty years, our first time together. Seeing how he was different, interacting with his friends and family, and he, he had a lightness about him, but also reflecting on uh, the hurt and pain that he had uh, for, for not being back and uh, missing his parents and missing his home where he grew up in. It helped me to understand him more and to be more empathetic and forgiving for some of his shortcomings. And it really, you know, things weren't overnight great. But it started the process and it was a cathartic moment as we stood there over the graves of my grandparents, his mother and father in the backyard of the house he grew up in uh, helped me to appreciate and have a deeper understanding of him.
1: I want to thank you so much, Will, for being with us today and sharing your, your amazing and wonderful story and inspiring story. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Will Gerondo, and he is the uh, civil rights and education policy attorney, community leader, and author of My Seven Black Fathers, Young Activist Memoir of Race, Family, and the Mentors Who Made Him Whole. And his website is willgerondo.com, and he spells his last name J-A-W-A-N-D-O. Willgerondo.com or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3764.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine willis toms Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge,